Welcome to the Calgary Sessions. This is episode number 82. I'm your host, Jeff Humphreys. Today's guest, my uh, buddy Devin hooked this one up. So thanks, Devo. Thanks, Dev. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a really cool conversation. I barely do any research on anybody. <laughs> I have a very loose idea of what you do. Yeah. I know it's sport related, which is like right in my wheelhouse. So yeah. uh, please name and who you are. Yeah. I am Russell Reimer. I'm the president of Manifesto Sport Management. We are an athlete agency that specializes in representation of athletes brand building, um, and then I would say on the other side, you know, really community building, social change through sport, and um, major event bits. So it, it's kind of a wide variety of things that really is reflective of the things that I love to do in my life and the philosophical guide that uh, helps me stay motivated every day. When you launched it, yes, this is, we're, going, we're going off, off uh, program already, did you have all those facets of the business, did you know that you were going to touch on all of those? Or over the years, have you kind of morphed into like adding on the community side or? Yeah, I mean, I think when you're developing a vision, you don't, I don't uh, necessarily think of where I'm going. You know, I don't think of a destination, oh, if I could just do that. Um, I, you know, I learn in doing and I have really deep-seated ideas. I grew up as a Mennonite and uh, your your religion and your life are not separated. So you you have a sense of what it is you purposefully believe or meaningfully believe you should be doing. And then from that, uh, I had to build a business that aligned with uh, my values and my vision. And I never really thought about where it was going. I only ever thought, how can I be a difference maker in, in Canadian sport? How can I use sport as a powerful tool to create social change? You know, things that, that I grew up thinking about, you know, mm. um, how can I uh, use sport to engage consumers to tell beautiful stories? And um, and that led me into a career of, I don't know, a lot of left turns and uh, good times. Mm. And I'm here now with a very, <laughs> very good understanding of what I'm currently doing. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like a startup every day when I go to work. And I... Uh, think very ambitiously and opportunistically about the future, but I don't know where it's going. Hmm. This is this is going to be a fascinating conversation for me for a couple of reasons. A, because it's sport driven, which I love, and the other piece of this is the branding piece and the storytelling. Yeah, yeah. Because that's like that's what I do for a living. Like I actually have a, like a, <laughs> no, I don't yeah. I don't get paid for this nonsense. No, no. This is the side hustle. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so it'll be really. I can't wait to get into like how it all comes together for you because it's. Um, I will go as deep as you want awesome. to, Jeff. I'm gonna yeah. get my master's right here. Yes, um, so <laughs> that's actually what my master's is in. <laughs> no shit, yeah, it's, it's more marketing. <laughs> no way, yeah, communications is more marketing. So I'm. Uh, if you want to get a master, I'm not going to teach you, but um, young Padawan. Uh, this will be awesome. Okay. So I don't know if you've seen any of these shows. Um, I like the guests to kind of go back and and just kind of go back to a point in time when they kind of start remembering things, you know, who they were, where they grew up, how they grew up, what yeah. inspired them. And we yeah. kind of weave away, weave our path to kind of where we are today. So yeah, what I like to do good. is just, I just like to understand, learn about how it all started. So take it back. Yeah. I mean, I, I touched on it a little bit when I was, when I was very young, um, you know, I think you, you recognize if you're of a certain age, I'm a Gen X kid. And there was a time when uh, there was no encumbrances. I mean, rebelliousness and being feral and just going after it every day was how you were. I mean, there was never a time that we weren't playing. There was never a time we weren't creative. There was never a time when we weren't um, taking ridiculous risk. Um, 
you know, everything in my life, I think, from very early was sweetened by risk. I was crazy. I mean, to the point of, um, of just stupid. Uh, and I remember when I was really young, I, I had you know, all of the grade six class on one end of the teeter-totter and me on the other, and all of them pushed down as, as hard as they could. And I went back th thinking that I would land back on the, on the teeter-totter. And then I got uh, put, uh, sent over a fence and landed on the hood of a Ford uh, um, station wagon. And I was basically <laughs> sitting there like on the top of this looking out and realizing that I'd put myself in this situation and I was, I loved it. I would have a story for life that I would, I would never forget this moment. My first concussion. It was so beautiful. <laughs> and um, so, you know, you, you, you realize along the way that there are these, you know, sort of concussion moments where you, not only do you get a great story out of it, but um, you are forced to stop and think and conform to the pace of the concussion. And the only thing that I think has slowed me down is a couple of health concerns along the way where I've had to become reflective and it's so hard to do that. Um, and, you know, I've got ADHD, don't mind talking about it. And it, um, uh, when you're on, you're on. Like, I mean, you can be ruthlessly on, uh, but when you're off, it, the internal dialogue is you either can engage it and think you can get ahead of it or um, you can try to put it away. And both options aren't super great. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, going back to that to that young age, when you when you grow up Mennonite, a small town, and uh, um, Miriam Taves is probably a good example of this. You know, she she's I think probably the most beautiful writer in Canada today. And Women Talking was just uh, Sarah Pauli just won an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. That's the book Miriam Taves and I grew up um, in the same community as her, and she had this really conflicted relationship with uh, with the Mennonite faith and wrote a book called The Complicated Kindness. And when I read that, everything uh, came back to me about how difficult it was to balance the religiosity of, uh, of, the, of the faith, right, with sort of the academic thinking that was built into it, and then the life that you were expected to live, and all of these constraints, um, conflicts, they... I think they create something really neat inside of you. You you have to be confronted at a very early age with big questions about life, mm. right? And the way that Mennonites view it. We lived in the town Steinbeck where the Mennonite Heritage Village Museum was. We went and sat in Saudis and ate popsicles. I mean, it was it was a thing. And my grandparents were pastors in in the movement, and uh, my great Grand, um, great grandfather was one of the founders of the town, and so we we were in deep, and it really changed, I think, in a very cultural uh, and significant way how I think about social change, how I think about religion's role in it, um, how I think about uh, change and community service as not a chore but something that you are you are guided to do right as an opportunity to give, so. These things have, I think, have really shaped how I how I do business and mm -hmm. why uh, why I do business. I just chose sport, and I don't mean to say that it replaced religion for me, although I'm not a very religious person. But I uh, I thought I could use sport to accomplish the same types of things that I learned when I was young mattered most. When you're young, <clears throat> dealing with like heavy topics, like, yeah. Do you do you have the opportunity to 
think like, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't believe this or I don't trust this. Or is it, or is it kind of a, you know, you're showing this path and you have to get on, you know, you got to get yeah. in line and go or where's it like, what kind of, what were you feeling back then? Yeah. You know, I'm naturally pretty rebellious. Can I swear? I don't yeah, know. If I good. Swear. Yeah. Free pass. Naturally, um, pretty rebellious and have a lot of fuck, fuck you energy. And I think that the disciplinary constraints uh, not just of the religion, but the, the family environment that I was in, is made it too made it too easy, um, where everything was considered rebellious. So when you're you're constantly show, you know asked to conform, then you learn uh, to be a nonconformist. When you're constantly asked to shut up, um, you share everything out loud all the time, right? There really wasn't a lot of filter when I was young. Uh, because I was living in oppositional defiance of those things. And mm. um, I, I, I personally love it. I mean, I, you know, I'm wearing a Muhammad Ali shirt. I think he was the master of this. Usually when you're making older white people uneasy, you know that you're doing something right. Mm. You know, so I, I learned these measures when I was young and maybe not so much in a, in a manipulative way, but in a way that, that helped me get through um, recognizing that my rebelliousness was actually a gift and the op oppositional defiance and the fuck you energy actually was the things that made me special, right? Mm. And that uh, all the discipline that was expected from me um, and, you know, sort of the laissez-faire approach to, to life um, was was the things that were beginning to form my uh, personality and uh, ultimately my career vision and my life. Mm -hmm. I, I just can't even, it's, a, it's such a different world, right? That I, that I was a part of. So, you know, <laughs> when you grew up, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so what's going on? So growing up in that environment yeah. is, and now that you're in the sport world, was sport, was sport a part of your world at a young age? Was it you know, was like yeah. an active kid or what would that look like? He had a great story. My, uh, so my dad, he passed away about a year ago. He was just uh, posthumously um, uh, given a Lifetime Achievement Award recognition uh, for 43 years in the ministry, uh, which gives you an idea of his wow. commitment level, mm -hmm. significant um, commitment. And he always looked at community service too, never a chore, but always an opportunity, greeted everything with a smile and, and you know, just had this self-effacing way to make people talk about very difficult things mm -hmm. over coffee. Did you, did you, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you all over the place. No did you know that was the skill set he had from a young age or, or now that you're looking back and as you got older, you kind of could see what his strengths were? Oh, no, he was eternally optimistic. There was never a moment in my life when I didn't know him. I mean, he's a disciplinarian guy. There's no question about it. But when he flipped the switch, um, he was, he was gravity. Mm -hmm. He was gravity. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was beautiful. And I, I know the best parts of me or him, you know, mm -hmm. take it or <laughs> take it or leave it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, to get back to your question, I grew up where in a family where sport, I mean, my, my brother was, was a star, uh, super freak athlete, um, in football. My sister was a national team volleyball player, played uh, pro in Portugal and France. And in this environment where, the only time where you could really be 
ruthless, you know, like my, my sister is an assassin. There is no other way to explain her approach to sport. And you see some kids who think that way all the time. And you know, I watch a lot of volleyball. I coached, um, and I had kids. We, you know, who are, we won provincials when in U16s, and I had a kid on my team who was he was that guy. He, he was absolutely ruthless, and um, you know the way that he would not gently chastise his teammates. We we called we had a thing on our team called energetic trust, and I learned that from when I was young that you had to actually put energy into the process of building trust with your teammates. You had to know that ball is yours so that I can do my job. And it's a hard thing sometimes for 14, 15 year olds to learn, but I, I learned it super young uh, in little league and you, you learn your role. We moved to Seattle when I was uh, in grade seven and I had, it was my last year of little league. And I remember my friend Shane Belknap was, was, was a star athlete at the time. And he said, why don't you come out and try out for our team? And I was, I was a good player. And, in Manitoba, and then I went and tried out, and there was like 23 guys I remember in the just for the infield positions. Mm. And I had the strongest arm, so I wasn't going to play short. So I was like lining up in sec at second to take take balls. Dad asked me, "Hey, how to go, Russ?" And I was like, "Dad, I am not going to make this team." And he was like, "No, son, you are not." <laughs> you know, like like. Um, and I think I had that competitiveness, and there's there's no there's no question that I had it i just didn't have the athleticism like my sister or brother to make it real mm. right so that competitiveness as well as a counterbalance uh that also i think helped very early uh, change my the focus of what i would become from an athlete to because you have to apply your competitive competitiveness somewhere yep. uh, michael jordan says that his competitiveness was his mm. gift and then when he retired it became his curse so i think that that um, you have to think that way too in opposition, you know. Mm. And too much of my life, I think, when I was young was in direct opposition to the things I could or couldn't do or was told I could or couldn't do. <laughs> uh, and sport was one of them. The th There's three of you? Yeah. And all very competitive? Yeah, my brother is, my brother is a softy, uh, one of the most diligent guys and just super smart. So it was an easy transition from him out of sport. Mm. And... For my sister, I, I wouldn't say the, the transition has been as easy. Uh, thankfully, she has sons who play volleyball, and she's mm. been able to channel that uh, appropriately. But it is hard. It is a difficult thing, I think. Uh, it's an entrepreneurial strength for sure. Mm. And, um, you know, grit and guts and all that shit that people talk about now, mm -hmm. that's important. Um, but it isn't when it's just in opposition to something, yeah. right? You have to think of these things as a gift, right? For sure. And a multiplier, not just something uh, where you're always fighting, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, or uh, what's, what's the old, um, you know, Buddhist phrase? When you're, by the time you're fighting, you've already lost, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, you said something earlier that was really, I find fascinating, the word assassin. You call your sister an yeah. assassin. <laughs> she was, man. And, oh. and, and you, you're like heavy in the sport world. You deal, you'll de you deal with some animals. Yes. How do you explain that assassin idea? Yeah. Like what's, um, what, 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 what's in them that gets them on that, that trajectory? Um, it might be misguided. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that is not quite me. But when I watched her play, um, I, I, there's very few athletes that I know, very few people that I know that, that can uh, access that part of them and even even maybe 
fewer that actually have it. So if you can find it because it's there, um, you cannot make it up. There, there is nowhere to go if that place doesn't exist already. So if you can find that and channel it, um, you, can, you can really be competitively special. Mm. There are a lot of people who are athletically special. Uh, th- this, is, this is a different source um, than athleticism. This is a different thing than, oh, I played super hard. No, I didn't win, right? And uh, outcome is all that matters. Mm. Um, I, don't, I don't even know. Uh, I mean, I have to ask her really directly if she enjoyed it mm. or the times when she didn't win, if, if she actually was still capable of having fun and or the times that she won, could she embrace small victories uh, or was it just immediately to the critique of the three, four plays that didn't happen? Mm. Um, and that's the downside risk of, of getting into that, what I think would be a pretty dark, pretty dark place in sport yeah. that you probably have seen in a few athletes. Um, but again, it doesn't matter even if you're pro. Um, there's might be a handful that I think of that can get there. Mm. It's that unique. It's that unique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, take me back to Seattle. So you, oh, you, move, you move there, getting cut from ball teams. Yeah, getting cut from ball teams. <laughs> then where do you go? Well, Seattle was great because um, there's a massive cultural upheaval from, from Steinbeck. So you're in a small Mennonite town. Like how um, small? Uh, at the time, 8,000. Okay. I lived on Reimer Avenue. I mean, 330 Reimer Avenue. Oh, shit. Our, our uh, town was, there's only five names that populate about 90% of the phone book for uh, Reimer, Friesen, Penner, Phrase. I mean, basically you have a um, a cross-sectional variety of people who all know each other's parents. Parents. So it's it's a very generational uh, town. Not a lot of people leave. It shaped Miriam Taves, as I said earlier, who's got to be one of the best writers in the country. And uh, her dad was my grade six teacher, right? So I go to go to Seattle in grade seven, and it is completely uh, different. Like, why? Like, <laughs> it's well. First of all, uh, we were in a in a cul-de-sac, and the, our next door neighbors were gay. I'd never met gay people before. Uh, I didn't really have an understanding of what it was. They they kindly and you know took the time to talk to me about it. Yep. In their relationship, and you know, in a very non-sexual way, I was 13 years old. But mm-hmm. I came to understand these things, and then I actually met people of different colors too. And it wasn't just um, a bunch of white kids that were mostly Mennonite, mm-hmm. uh, where there's a lot of insular religious thinking. Um, it was uh, it was the best of a lot of things. I'm not going to say it was, it was super multicultural. Uh, I still went to a colonial Christian school, yeah. which is actually the name of the school. Um, but it was, uh, it was eye-opening. It, it was uh, the world outside. And, and from someone like you, yes. who's like the, you weren't afraid to go like, push against the grain. Oh, yeah, that was the funnest time of my life, man. Because like, I'm sure you're seeing, you're, there's more opportunities, or like the runway is even longer to... Yeah, <laughs> I went the, that entire time. I was, you know, this is where I think, you know, there's a beautiful um, blend when you turn about 14 or 15 where you're trying to define yourself. 
I'm doing everything to define myself in opposition to the things that I see that I don't like. And I, I'll get a little bit biblical on you here, but I, I remember getting assigned an, um, an essay of tell, uh, what did you learn? Read the book of Job and tell us what you learned. And so I went deep. I mean, I went like discipleship deep mm. into this, into this book. And I was 13, maybe I just turned 14 at the time. And uh, I came out recognizing just how genocidal God was. And at a, at a very early age that, uh, the psychopathy of the God of the old Testament was absolutely crazy. Think of this. This is like a trading Gretzky moment. Okay. He, Job is literally the number one guy, um, has all the faith in God, has a beautiful family, all of this land, all of these uh, cows and sheep, and he's been prosperous, uh, presumably because he's been blessed by God. Then God makes a deal with Satan, and it's literally like like Peter Pocklington uh, selling Gretzky. Th this is like the number one guy, and God just says to Satan, Satan kind of tricks God a little bit and says, hey, my servant Job, um, he's, uh, I've counted him among the most righteous. And Satan says, want to bet? God, and he catches God, right? And God, God says, okay, I bet you that you can do anything to Job and he will not curse me. And he gives him permission to kill everything that Job owns, not to take it away from him, not to magically disappear it, to slaughter it. So I'm starting to read this and I, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, this is, this is, I think, different than what they wanted me to, to mm -hmm. come up with. Because the, bo the book of Job, if you don't read it, the story you learn in, in uh, Bible school, Bible class, is Job had everything taken away from him, but he never cursed God, and God blessed him. Okay, that, that's a nice little bow. But again, Gretzky got traded. I mean, this is your best guy. This is your number one guy. Mm -hmm. And you, you made a bet with Satan uh, about him. So when I began to really understand the root of rebelliousness and that it, that it may actually even be biblical, it led me into this, this thinking and discussion about how rebellious Christ was. And that's when I first began to think uh, during those maybe grade eight and nine about how, how differently the Bible could look if you took a lens that God was not good mm -hmm. and that maybe all of my oppositional defiance had meaning and purpose and wasn't just wrong, mm -hmm. right? It wasn't something that was gonna um, uh, send me to hell as a, as a possible outcome. And religion's power is the downside risk, right? And I believed at that time, after submitting that essay, that I was unshackled. Uh, I really embraced my rebelliousness and, um, you know, my, my need to fuck shit up. And I started thinking of it more positively as something that wasn't just in opposition to a disciplinary dad and a, and a church environment that was very structured. Mm. I decided it was me 
um, very positively and not negatively. Long, long Bible story there, but that is a very, very real and fluid moment uh, in in absolute 180 change in my life. Hmm. Was that before Seattle or in, during in Seattle? Yeah, while I was there. As you're telling that story, and like in Seattle, the, one of these random questions that I never ask anybody is like, "What kind of music were you listening to in Seattle?" Yeah, that's great. Um, I was listening to, um, let me see here, uh, Violent Femmes. Um, I loved Aha. Mm. I loved that that uh, album, um, Hunting High and Low. Um, and then I think my probably my favorite band at the time. I remember. I have this theory about um, the Breakfast Club. I went to, it was February 14th. I'm going to say 1985. Okay. Sorry. Okay. How do you know that? How are you, I, how are well, you I, like dialed like that? I was with my, my girlfriend, Becky Babcock. She was the cutest. I have a, I actually found a picture of her that she sent me that goes, I, I love you so much. You're the best. I'm 15 years old. So we went to the Breakfast Club and, um, and, and you recall it now uh, because it was in Pitch Perfect. And it it's really is the greatest ending uh, to a film, but what I what I th- or the theory that I uh, built around it with Becky while we were there is Valentine's Day date, okay? Mm. And the theory is that there is there was a generational change taking place, and that those who were older than than Breakfast Club, meaning that you were already in high school and you had your identity established, you would fit into the silos in the circle in the library that were clearly defined by John Hughes. If you were younger and you had this almost like gorillas in the mist way of looking at this anthropologically, I didn't use the word at the time anthropologically, but <laughs> if you reflect on it and you see these, these uh, six different kids sitting around in a circle, then you, you can begin to realize that identity is fluid and identity doesn't just, um, it doesn't just mean that you have to accept the silo that you're in. And be a vertical, right? Become a noun. Mm. Uh, there was the, a jock, uh, an alt girl, right? Uh, you, you see it now today. It, high school is made essentially for you to conform to a stereotype because there's a certain amount of comfort in it. So the theory goes that if you're younger and your identity hasn't been fully established yet, you then have an opportunity to assess and evaluate these roles for what they are. And if you think they're all bullshit, you could just be yourself instead. Mm. And so when I watched that movie with her, we kind of had this moment. We were like, well, who are you? Like, which one of the characters are you? And she was like, well, I think I'm Molly Ringwald. And I was like, I didn't see myself in anyone. And she was definitely Molly Ringwald, God bless her. And I, I recognized that she was Molly Ringwald. And, um, but for me, I didn't, I didn't really think, I mean, I got a piece of the alt girl and... I tend to over-exaggerate stories. I mean, I'll take it where it needs to go when it needs to go there. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and I'm a, a bit internally conflicted. I deal with you know, a, a mind that wants to do a lot of things at the same time. And, um, but I'm also athletic, and I wanted to be that kid. And I had mm-hmm. a disciplinary father. And it, when, when the dad dropped him off, it was all about making states, you know? And, uh, and I, I saw myself in a lot of those characters and I had a rebelliousness like Jad and when he raised his fist at the end, um, 
you know, I think Simple Minds at that point became my favorite band. So mm. long way to get to the, Dude, the answer it. Simple Minds. <laughs> I love it. Um, that, uh, the moment when you, when, you, when you wrote that essay. Yeah. And you kind of like, uh, it either unshackled you or you kind of like, you could be, you could work towards like positive yeah. kind of things. What, what kind of path did that start putting you on? Well, um, a reasonably constructive one. Uh, I think what happens when you're, you know, with, with, with ADHD, I, I've learned to, um, to tackle it in a couple of ways because uh, I, I don't take any medications for it. And part of it is I, I think that the, the things I really like about, my, about myself, I wouldn't want to lose those. Yeah, they don't get dull. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and you don't want to be a blunt instrument. I mean, you want to get to the point. So I, I started thinking really creatively about ways to game myself and really constructively about how to channel these things. And um, it, it helped a lot in high school. Uh, I moved actually back to Canada for high school. And, uh, Manitoba? In Winnipeg, or in, uh, in Wetaskiwin. Okay. And so I'm in central Alberta, uh, which is again another culture shock. And I, I was reasonably smart. You know, I was, I think, street, street smart and a little, maybe a little bit more book smart. And so I realized that if I could figure out what it is I wanted to do, I could impose some regimen on myself. And the way I game myself was actually by faking deadlines. And I would create uh, a entire, you know, this is an ADHD nightmare, but you, you lay out all of the things that you have to do. And then I would have a paper due like December 9th, but if it only fit into my schedule to write it on September 20th, it would be, due, it would be done on the 3rd, on the 23rd. So then I would hand it in and the professor would go like, dude, this is like, like three weeks late. And I would go, no, this is the one due on December 9th. So I, I learned, I think, constructively to mm. figure out how to uh, not just live in oppositional defiance uh, all the time and take some of that fuck you energy and put it into myself mm. and how I approached, um, you know, academic learning and how I could game, game myself a bit with fake deadlines. And it that, still works. Does it? Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. That gaming piece, like for you to figure it out on your own, if you, yeah. if, if you didn't figure it out... Oh, I'd be a mess. It's a dark, <laughs> dark hole. Yeah, and, and also, if, if, you, if you can't flip the switch from oppositional defiance, then what are you going to do? You're going to relitigate? You know, um, a, f a friend of mine calls it a procrastination crutch, crush. You, you fall in love with the fight. Mm. You get it, it, everything that you want to do is left in a procrastination crush because you're in love with it. You're infatuated with the idea of the fight, right? Mm. And then once you release yourself and you realize um, when you're in opposition to something, it owns you, not the other way around. And that procrastination crush, you have to actually identify it and break up with it. Mm. It's not working for me anymore. I can't relitigate these things anymore. It is destroying me just to be oppositional. And I, that's a lot of what I see in, in, uh, in Muhammad Ali and why, you know, reading uh, Ali, um, Ali rap, you know, which is this incredible, the street poetry of Muhammad Ali and the conscientious objection to the Vietnam War. And you, you see conscientious objection is a very thoughtful 
truthful and meaningful understanding of what you are standing in opposition to, mm. right? That's a very constructive place to mm -hmm. be. So I, I, I gained a lot from, you know, understanding the, the struggle. And even though I didn't obviously go through it from a race perspective, I could appreciate um, how Ollie's faith uh, became central to his humility, right? And it was never really braggadocious. His his style uh, and the the grace and the I mean he was a savage ballerina. I mean he could do it all, right? And that's a, those are, were, began to be the things that I aspired toward mm. instead of from. Mm. To come up with these um, these thoughts, yeah. There's no there's no like blueprint for this. Is it is it you just like hacking hacking your own system to understand? what it's going to take for you to kind of move forward in a productive way. Like it's just, yes. Cause I, I don't know at, at your age to be like, you know, looking for books or finding people to talk to, I feel like there's, it would have been dead ends all over the place. Yeah. Dead ends. And I think, um, you know, ADHD was misunderstood. Medicating your kids was not something my parents were, were really willing to do. Um, I remember readdressing it after, uh, university, but during university I could, I could have a, just an absolutely incredible, research focus. And I, I remember writing a paper on um, uh, Exodus 32, 1 to 14, like literally the most obscure passage. The paper was called, let, this is... Where'd you go to university? Sorry. Before, I went I'm undergrad before, at university in Winnipeg. Okay, so, sorry. With task when you finish high school, then you go to Winnipeg? Yeah, I go to Winnipeg. I actually, I was trying to make the volleyball team uh, at, at University of Winnipeg. They were the number one team in the country. My sister went there on full ride. And so I went there with her and I was the last cut. No way. And, and that, I think, helped me quite a bit, too, in, you know, uh, flipping the switch yep. and getting more serious about academics. Uh, I write this obscure paper, and it's called... What program are you in? Sorry. Uh, I'm in poli-sci, but I took a religious class because I knew the Bible really well. Okay. I thought, i got to put this to use, man. i got yeah. probably 4.0, this mother. <laughs> i got some and, stuff to uh, write. <laughs> that's what I told my volleyball coach. He was like, he was like um, okay, Russell, it's Friday morning, last practice, last trial practice was the night before. He goes, what are you going to bring this team? And I was like... Uh, you know, um, that moment when we're, we're in a 13-13 game to win CIS championships, I'm going to be the guy who makes the dig and we will win. Mm. And, um, and then I said, and, and I'll bring you a 4.0 as well. I'll be an academic all Canadian. So that didn't make, that didn't make the team. Dude, that's I was a, like, that's, that's the a good best damn though, answer right? I've ever, I've <laughs> yeah. ever Record. provided on the spot. That's podcast worthy <laughs> shit right there. So I, um, I wrote this paper of skier title called uh, Iconoclasm and Apostasy in Ancient Jewish Art. What the fuck? I mean, <laughs> just absolutely ridiculous. And I went so deep on it that it was like that, you know, understanding the bet that God made with Job. And I, I the amount of research that I did for a, I don't know, eight to 10 page paper was like doctoral dissertation stuff. Like I devastating. Was, like you were just. I went in. Mm. I went in, and I, I got a I got a good grade on the on the <laughs> on it. But it didn't really it didn't really matter to me. And then I knew, I knew I had the template. You know, to go back to the idea of how did you game how did you game yourself, and I got competitive with the academics. No way. And then I faked deadlines. Mm. So that combination of this problem or this question will not beat me. 
and I'm not just going to find an answer to it. I'm going to find uh, an answer that requires me to advance a conversation uh, that academics are having. Hmm. And that was just absolutely un- uplifting. And and then crush it all the way through? And then just crush it. Like I crushed undergrad and ma- my master's. What? Your master's in? Yeah, I took a master's in communications. At, I went to UFC, yep. and they just let me. Uh, my my <laughs> my thesis advisor, Bart Beatty, Beauty, by the way, you should have him on the podcast. Talk comics. If you want to talk comics, talk Bart Beatty. I'm not that smart. So Bart said to me, I said, you know what, Bart? I'm I'm not getting enough out of this. I need to I need to create a research vertical for myself. Do they? And do, sorry, when you say that to a prof, do they do they understand where you're coming from, and do they understand the level you're able to play at? Yeah, he did. He did. He did. And. Uh, he, he, he would say, you know, I'm never, I never worry about, I never worry about you. You know, I would come in, uh, everyone would come in and it, it, they would be like, you have three theses check-ins. Okay. And you got this big master's project you got to do. It's going to be a hundred and something pages. And usually people would come in and it would be just before Thanksgiving. And they'd be like, oh, I haven't even started on it, man. I had the entire framework I'd written the introduction. I had come up with a thesis that, uh, advanced the idea of, you know, p- passive activity, how sporting events uh, almost um, paralyze us democratically because we feel that we've uh, engaged in something that is patriotic uh, and then don't apply that forward to actual democracy. Mm. Um, and that this was, this, I mean, this was really in America, the, the thing that was happening and that even today, um, 20, 15 years later, is what is happening, hmm. right? Um, are you not entertained? And it's, um, you, as you watch their de- democracy crumble, you realize that many of them only engage in very simplistic ideas of, of patriotism, freedom. You know, the number of times I've heard the word freedom, uh, slippery slope, or both sides. Man, if I hear any of those fucking words again, if, if you're arguing with me and I hear freedom, <laughs> slippery slope, or both sides, I walk away. I take my brass <laughs> noted, cup noted. and I walk away. Um, can't, can't, don't have a minute for it. So please don't. Where were we? At university. This, yeah, asking that. Um, Bart Beatty. Yeah. So he just said, okay, you got Go. this. Just have your fun. So, sorry. What, what does that actually look like? Like when you, when you, when you're like all in like that, these wildly deep levels, mm-hmm. what does it actually, what does your like week look like? Oh. Are you able to, yeah, I was working full time at the time as well. So um, just like burning, no sleep, like just. No, I would, um, I would coax myself into flow, and uh, I've read a lot of Stephen Kotler lately. I, I don't know if you've read the, read the book West of Jesus. Nope. It's the because it's the opening um, salvo by uh, Stephen Kotler, who has now become the, the worldwide authority on flow state. And I was snowboarding a lot uh, back then. And I remember coming home and I would basically be in my uh, first layer. And then I would be like, I had been thinking all day uh, because I was just riding a snowboard. I, the internal dialogue stopped for a few minutes and, and then hours and then almost an entire day where I didn't think about anything, you mm-hmm. know, and there, there's certain magic or meditative magic in, in that. And you're, you're like, man, uh, this is all it takes. Right. This is all it takes is some physical activity, 
uh, a snowboard on snow and you can get there. So I would, I would take all of that and uh, put it into the work, you know, because when you have that level of clarity and you haven't fought your, and you haven't had an internal struggle, and I do call it the beautiful struggle. I, I don't, I have absolutely no regrets about where I'm at with it. But when that beautiful struggle gives you a break for a moment, right? Um, you can see things very clearly. Mm. And I would, I would write pages while riding and just be focused on it. Mm. When I get home, it would, I, would, I would write it faster than I could type. Just comes out, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, 10, 15 uh, pages at a time. Yep. Yeah. So no, no concerns uh, about it. Uh, but it's, again, you have to game yourself. You have to game yourself. False deadlines, mm-hmm. uh, snowboarding, you know, flow state. I, uh, I think you learn those things, and they, they're tools, really good tools. Was was the snowboarding your athletic outlet? Was it the one sport that you could kind of, yeah, in your mind and kind of? I had a, fr- a lot of friends that were really good. <laughs> oh, I yeah? represent, represent snowboarders today. <laughs> well, I know that sounds like uh, interesting. <laughs> I'm I'm not that guy. I wasn't you know like a pro snowboarder, but I, I did. I did have, I think what it did was it satisfied my, the level of risk and flow, that certain, mm. and I think, you know, um, a balanced life is, is risk and flow, right? Everything in life is sweetened by risk and everything in life is stayed by flow, right? And if you can, even if you wildly swing from one to the other, if you can kind of find equal parts, uh, you can live a really, really good and productive life. Hmm. That that thought process about finding equal parts. Yeah. When did you figure that out? My dad always used to say when I was young, I, I didn't. I talked all the time. Uh, so uh, my dad would say, "You can be a talker, but equal parts action." And there, there's this deeply rooted idea. Again, we talked about community service, and you know that community service is never a, a chore. So if you were if you were going to talk, and you were going to put yourself out there. Uh, you also had to back it up with equal parts action. Mm. So that, that's something I've kept with me, I think, for my whole life because it it ties in three words uh, my religious past to my uh, creative present. Mm-hmm. What happens after University of Calgary? You get your master's? Then where are you off to? Finished. Oh, my <laughs> Dude, God. It, it took me seven years. It took me seven years. I was seven so years. slow. Well, I, I was working full time, so I just took one class Where were you working? I started my first company, Agenda Sport Marketing, at the time. So I was uh, basically in startup mode. So you had yeah. a d- degree, start your own business, and then yeah. jumped into your master's. Jumped into my master's. I wanted to get it all done before I had a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, and literally one month after I graduated, we my son was born. So, uh, the name of the company was, sorry, Agenda? That was Agenda at the time, and my company now is Manifesto Sport Management. And Agenda, what was the, uh, what was the vision that you... Like, did you... Like to start to know that right away, like you're in university and you're like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, here, here's how I think about it. Much in the same way that you're not trying to find where it is you're going. You know, I think a brand is, is fundamentally and philosophically created, um, especially during startup mode, uh, by thinking opportunistically. If you create a straight path to this mythical idea that you're going to become something again you're you're becoming a noun and and there's that great quote by uh, oscar wilde if you want to become that that's your prison you will be stuck there as a noun 
And that's what you will be, a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer. You can pursue those paths, and anyone that pursues those paths, got, I mean, go get it. That wasn't for me, and I wanted to be a verb. You know, the idea was you were always in the process of becoming. I, I've never thought of myself entrepreneurially as outside of startup mode. Um, my personal company is called Small Victories as a reminder to reflect occasionally on things that you've accomplished, but never take it for granted. Everything next has to be earned and, um, or created. Hmm. And uh, I think that was the entrepreneurial journey. I didn't get there as much uh, with Agenda, and, but I really hit it with Manifesto. So Agenda, did you, did you know that you weren't wired to work for somebody? Or was it, or was it you just had these ideas that you just needed to scratch an itch? Well, this is the, it goes back to the oppositional defiance part. You can, you can do one of two things if you're working for someone, um, especially if you don't uh, really like, admire, or believe that this person uh, professionally or the, these people professionally um, you should be working for. So I, one, you can do one of two things. You can complain and be oppositional, or you can get the fuck out and you can um, build something for yourself um, without compromise. So that's what I did. And that, that's, so when you, when you started, what was your, um, what were you doing? What, were, what, was your, what was the drive behind that idea? Well, the drive initially was um, to be a difference maker in Canadian sport. I had, I had spent um, uh, two Olympics as a producer for NBC. Um, at the time, the other sport that I played uh, quite competitively was beach volleyball. And I'm a small guy. So you have to, you know, learn to earn is the way I put it. Mm -hmm. um, you had to basically dissect where every point was going to come from mm -hmm. uh, because you didn't have the physical gifts of, of most of the guys you played against. And I'm 5'6", there was no one under six feet mm -hmm. uh, that, that played on the tour. So um, every play was all out all the time. Learn to earn. So every practice you had to pick on yourself and all these things, right? So when you apply that forward, um, you gain some valuable lessons about learn, learn to earn, right? Where, where's your actual money going to come from? What, what are you going to do as an entrepreneur that's also going to help you build a profitable business? Because you can't do the things that you want to unless you figure out how to make it pay, right? It mm -hmm. don't mean a thing if you can't make it sing. So I uh, chose to take the leap, uh, the really big leap, and do it when I was young. And it came from a really simple idea. I think it was I, I was in Sydney 2000. And I, I got this job back to beach volleyball because I was a writer uh, for beach volleyball. And I had a certain voice and tone because I played the sport. Mm -hmm. I didn't cover it. So I got to know the guys, the, the, the girls that played and uh, ended up um, uh, writing for, for a, a website at the time called planetvolleyball.com. And then I met this guy at 997 World Championships. Are you traveling um, around at this point? Are you like bumping around to different events or are you kind of... I'm playing, yeah. I'm playing <clears throat> during the summers and it was mm. kind of my, my main thing. And I love how you just slide this in. I'm like, now my head's like, fuck, we need to talk about that. Yeah, beach volleyball. <laughs> um, so, but this is what opened up the door professionally for me. 1997, Tom Fuhrer, I meet him at the, at the uh, World Championships of beach volleyball. And I'm asking questions in... Um, in a media scrum with Karch Karai, okay? 
Best, mm, best well, another mm-hmm. Wayne Gretzky reference there, Crutch Cry. Um, so we're, we're asking questions, and then Tom hears me ask a, a question, and he comes up to me after, and he goes, I'm building a team for Sydney 2000, and would you, what do you think about being a producer? Would, would you want to be a producer? And I was like, beautiful. And uh, so I got, to, I got to cover beach volleyball for the Olympic Games. Awesome. And, um, you know, I learned, a lot of people hate the way NBC covers the Olympics. I absolutely love it. And the thing you learn coming out of, um, coming out of the games with NBC or going into the games in this highly competitive environment where every morning you'd have an editorial meeting and everyone wants a Costas moment. Everyone wants that lead Costas story. Right? Who's going to get it? There's 17 producers around mm. the table. Mm. Only one of you, one of you is going to get the lead. So you had this incredible um, competitiveness and an environment that was built to squeeze the lemon uh, of creativity as hard as it could be squeezed to create all of these beautiful stories and mm. bring them to life mm-hmm. for an audience um, that didn't care so much about the sports as they did the drama. And if you could deliver the soap operatic stuff really well, well, you were winning. So mm-hmm. I came up with this phrase at the time, uh, Olympians and their stories are the currency of the Olympic movement. And that became the guiding principle of, uh, of Manifesto. Amazing. And, and uh, that's pretty much what we do. And you know what's funny is um, people have literally opened their presentations with that. And I've been sitting in a room Come on. With them doing a presentation, and then they'll do a quote, and then they'll attribute it to, I don't know, like Aristotle or something. And I'm like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> that was me. And it's always unattributed, um, but it, I, I actually think of it as, um, as a real honor. It, it, it shaped a lot of how people look at the Olympic movement in our country, and that was from, that was from Sydney 2000. Hmm. I got to also... Uh, got another really good contract going into Salt Lake 2002 and was a part of it. some incredible, incredible moments there with NBC. And uh, after that, began to think really carefully about uh, and, and clearly about how does this idea of athletes and their stories or the currency of the Olympic movement. Uh, and then one year later, we won the Olympic Games in July 2003. Crazy. And I knew there was a business here. And then if I could learn to commercialize storytelling um, this was remember 2003. This, early. There wasn't there wasn't this, a lot of people walk, running around <clears throat> going full Simon Sinek on it and going ah oh, storytelling blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, if I had known at the time that that was going to be the ex- the explosive yeah. idea in marketing over the next decade, I probably wouldn't have done any of this and just wrote a, wrote a really good book. And uh, but I chose to apply that storytelling approach forward hmm. and uh, add some soul to 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 the Olympics and. I believe that's what I did going into Vancouver 2010. That's an amazing way to put it. Add yeah. some soul into the yeah. Olympics. Um, when you said that some people didn't like what NBC did and some people, what it, what was it? What like what? It, <laughs> yeah. People, some people didn't like the the stories, like the kind of the drama behind the scene stuff. They just want to see like the athletes perform. Um, I think they want to. I think it's mostly that the really exclusive idea of American exceptionalism. There is no country other than America. Everyone else is fodder to be to be to lose to Americans, mm. and that sells. I mean, that sells. Um, that and kiss and cry in figure skating. I mean, at the Salt Lake Olympics, I 
I was, I was a small part of, of what was an earth-shattering story at the time. And I really mean that. It was like the number one story in the entire world. Um, we, were, we had web pools, uh, which again, in Early. 2002, really? was not a thing. Mm -hmm. So we had this web pool after Salih and Pelche finished second to the Russians. And we had a small group. It was um, Tom Fuhrer and myself, um, Dick Ebersole, I mean, the greatest uh, sport mind in the history of uh, television. Um, <clears throat> and uh, Dick Ebersole and one other person I'm forgetting now. Oh, uh, David Wolachinsky. David Wolachinsky is like, wrote the Bible on the Olympics. And he is the number one researcher in the world, NBC's chief of research. So we're all sitting there. Uh, Sam Silverstein was the other guy, <clears throat> producer for uh, uh, figure skating. So we're, we're all sitting there and we're like, how are we gonna, ma we invested so much money and so much time, so much resource in making Salih and Pelche honorary Americans. They were of course Canadians. And I, early in the Olympic games, I identified that there could be problems with European block judging. At the time, the story that we chose to go with was, is it gonna be love story or is it gonna be orchid? Which, which, which one would they do when it mattered most? And I was like, there's a bigger story here. Everybody at the producer's table called me a homer. I was called Canada. The people who didn't know me, I would walk down the hallway of the IBC. <laughs> hey, Canada. <laughs> no and they, it was just so derogatory, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and um, they thought I was a total homer. But that night, there was a taxi cab confessional by the French judge where she told the taxi driver that she had, she had fixed it for the Russians. So armed with this information, we put up a web poll, and I, I suggested, why don't we do a web poll? Ask America, it's democracy. It's like 97%, there's like four million. Bob Costas does the lead on uh, the taxi cab confessional, the French judge. Um, you know, she's currently in a holdup, basically, Remember so that. that the Russians can't get to her, because, I mean, <laughs> do not let the Russians get to her. So we had all basically tried to figure out what is a solution here that doesn't lose half of America, right? Because if the Olympics are fixed, then that's foundational, right? Web poll, Costas leads web poll. Four million votes in five minutes, crashes NBCOlympics.com. Costas continues with the story and all the dramatic beats. And Wallachinsky had found this obscure double gold from like the 1968 Grenoble Olympics in France and some ski jump event or something where a judge had made a mistake and two golds were awarded. So armed with all of this, the story goes that Ebersol left and <clears throat> went to Octavio Cinquanta, who's the second most powerful man in sport. And he said, web poll, solution, lose America, what, what you decide. And the next morning at 11 o'clock, the ISU uh, awarded Jamie Clinton. and David a second gold. So crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. <laughs> so web poll. That's <laughs> like my small contribution uh, to Jamie and David's gold. I haven't even told Jamie that uh, story. So wild. That's it. Um, you were just going to get into when the Canadian, when the Olympics were awarded and you're yes. like, oh, I see an opportunity here. So this is where your, this is where my master's program starts with you. Yes. Your branding, your storytelling, you're like seeing something, this whole vision. This is where I'm just going to sit back and shut up. So yeah. Okay. So you begin to formulate an idea, right? And, 
Um, that sounded so limitless from uh, uh, the movie Limitless. You begin to formulate an idea that athletes and their stories are the currency of the Olympic movement. And uh, is there anybody else talking like this, by the way? Zero. Like you're. I even went to you're agencies. Like, you're no like idea. left field. Like you're yeah, like. Totally. So I was developing a narrative inventory and I had to do this at NBC. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, there are, I've got 27 stories for the Olympics. Which do I think are the most uh, commercially marketable? Okay. I need to go sign those athletes. Those are the athletes I need to, to target. If I'm going mm-hmm. to build an agency. I need to, I need to know with some certainty how I would evaluate it editorially. And then I need to sell the concept of storytelling and brand storytelling because it didn't really exist at the time. And this is go back. Tell me what year again. Two thousand three. Just so we have context here. Just yes. so how far ahead? Because it's twenty years ago. And and right now it's like hot, hot, obviously. Yeah. But like twenty years ago, okay. Twenty years ago. Okay. So um, I got all these clients. I'm looking forward to the Olympics. Athletes and their stories. You know, my career vision was to be a change maker in Canadian sport. I believe this was. The, the path forward. And um, I, I struggled. I mean, I think I'm a reasonably good communicator, uh, but the market wasn't there yet. It wasn't ready to respond. And it, it, when I say that the Vancouver 2010 missed the moment, I mean that in, in really the most inglorious way possible. Um, we had the biggest event in the world uh, in our country and we failed to do two really critical things. Um, the first was we forgot that all that mattered was story. Like we really forgot that. We had a, a leadership at the Canadian Olympic Committee who at the time, five days into the Olympics, were ready declaring it a failure. They, they held a press conference to call it a failure. Two days later, uh, we won the first ever gold. You know, we had the most beautiful story. Um, Bill Lido and his brother, I can't remember his brother's name, uh, but but his his brother um, had a disability. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, I and there's a touching and beautiful moment mm-hmm. of their embrace, and we forgot that that was more powerful than podiums. Yeah. Right. We had these fourth and fifth places, and we needed to really reevaluate why we had abandoned story and humility, grit and grace, all of these beautiful things that made Canada so awesome, and we gave it all up. We gave it all up for this ridiculous concept called own the podium. So we, when I say we missed it in an inglorious way, that's where we forgot ourselves. And we tried to change ourselves and I think shift our identity in a way where um, it, it, it's, it's as bad as watching King Charles being coronated. And it was it, it's so debilitating even now that program, uh, the number of athlete casualties that have suffered from that program is enormous. We forgot what made Canada special. Mm. And that was story. Mm. The reason brands weren't prepared for that conversation, agencies weren't ready to hear that. Not is wasn't because it wasn't special to us. And that's where the investment should have been. There were so many glorious stories. Mm-hmm. It's that the only people telling them were CBC. Right. It wasn't brands that chose to to get behind the reins of them. Mm-hmm. By the next Olympics, things had changed, and mostly because of the drastic failure that most brands experienced with their hundreds of millions of dollars of investments. There were ads featuring talking cars. Yeah. I had a narrative inventory of stories that I believed aligned perfectly with brands, and I would present to people and agencies and say... See, so, so run me through this, dude, now, master's program. Hit me. <laughs> 
you have an idea, you, you pitch it to RBC, and you're like, here's a way to humanize, let's tell a story around this yes. person. That was an actual pitch. <laughs> yeah. And, and they just look at you like you're like yeah. fucked up, like you just don't get it. Yeah, I think, I think it was, I don't know if I'm speaking this, a different language. It, it, it was an idea that time just wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. It took the failure of Vancouver 2010, right? I spoke at a conference right after Vancouver 2010. It was in May and met another incredible mentor of mine. I told that story about Tom Fuhr earlier. May 2010, and the research that was coming out of the COC was not friendly. Uh, their partners did not succeed. Um, and I asked the question, why? People had conclusions, and part of it was theater because your research can't under, undermine your investment, you know what I mean? You just paid $100 million for the rights. So you couldn't have gone all wrong. But I, I knew that they did. I, because I've been on the, I've been on the uh, pitch path for two and a half years, selling the same concept mm. to people who are unwilling to listen, mm. uh, and it would have changed fundamentally how a lot of brands I think approach the games, and would have helped a lot of brands win. It would have also done Canada the service of saying and promoting athletes. When you watch it now, it's completely integrated. Yeah. I mean, it's there's there's no separation. Yeah. That concept of narrative inventory and brand alignment was first introduced to the Canadian market by me, and I can say that with 100% certainty. Hmm. So I, I'm speaking at this conference, and it's at the Rogers Center, so Rogers Sport Marketing Conference or whatever, and I ask everybody what their favorite moment of the games was. And you know, 150, 200 people, they're all answering, Crosby's goal, Billado's brother, Joanny Rochette's skate for her mom, Charles Hamlands, uh, you know, two golds in 30 minutes. And uh, America, or uh, beating America in the gold medal game of hockey, you know. And I was like, um, all of those involve one thing, athletes and their stories. Fuck. Why did we miss what, what every single person was going to pull out of a moment? Sidney Crosby, Joanny Rochette, Charles Hamland, Alex Bilodeau. None of these people featured in advertising. None. So tell me again why we failed. And put away the research and just tell me again why we failed. Hmm. And I mean commercially. The other part is we failed as a country and a national identity when we should have doubled down on all the things that already made us great, right? Grit, grace, humility, uh, understanding the value of fourth place. And we didn't. Hmm. We didn't do it. We also didn't create a lasting legacy of participation, which I think is, is still a tragedy today. Um, so commercially, people began, I think, to understand, but only because of the failure. And it took that massive failure to create upheaval. Um, the person I met who spoke right after me was Chris Overholt. He had just become the CMO and then uh, shortly after the CEO of the Canadian Olympic Committee. Mm. And we went to work. We I was going to say. We went to work. We had, cool. we had one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had with an authority figure in my life. Uh, I knew at the time that it, I had two choices. I could either be oppositionally defiant and stay within the problem, or I could get outside of the problem, not relitigate all the bullshit of the past, tell him very candidly what needed to happen, mm-hmm. and if he was receptive to it, we could do something remarkable. Mm. And he said, yes, let's get it. 
Amazing. His promise to me, I'll tell you, I've never heard these words before. Probably never again. This is a good one. <laughs> we created four pillars, boiled down to one idea, athlete-centered, marketing-driven. The entire organization was going to re remodel itself as a franchise where athletes became uh, the heart and soul, that simple idea, right? Athletes and their stories are the currency of the Olympic movement, that that would be front and center, the philosophical uh, guide. So he says to me, okay, agreed on all this. If I don't deliver for you, you can cut me off forever. And I was like, that's a promise. Mm. That's a promise. Let's go get it. Mm. So that's the first time that I felt um, from a, a person of at least a title authority. He's never really th thought of himself that way as an authority over me, but he's a very, very powerful uh, guy within the Olympic movement. And, and his work that I was really proud to instigate some of it um, and to help guide uh, that's some of the most meaningful stuff I've ever done. Hmm. So Spectacular. Spectacular. We're, I don't even know where we were. That's just, we're just where we went. We're just in great places. Okay, good. Um, your drive or your pull to storytelling. Mm. And for, yes, it's kind of talked about now. I still think it's kind of quiet. Not, yeah. not everyone really is talking about the right way. It's definitely, in, it's, it's in conversations now. Yeah. Where did that combining story and brand that actually like translates translates into money like yeah making is, it commercially viable this is all an like a these are early ideas what what drove you down based on your all i heard i listened to your entire background yeah and then here we are you're like you put those three things together yes. and i was like oh where does this come from yeah that was in that was in 2003 or four somewhere like, in there but all your experiences led you to that kind of thought process to kind of build something out yeah it's I mean, it's not, it's not much harder than yes. Uh, and I don't, again, I don't think... Storytelling in 2003 seems like such an obscure... Yeah. And I'm not just reflexively calling it that. I was pitching that in mm. the market mm. actively every day. It was even philosophically my approach with athletes. You know, I would say this. Um, I, I would encourage them to go to talk to their agents and... And uh, and see how different I was because mm. the the conversation I had with athletes was remarkably different, I think, yeah. than everybody else who just saw them as uh, you know commercial patches and headgear. And I didn't I didn't look at it that way at all. I said, "There's real currency in what you do, so let's build that story out. Let's editorialize where you want to go and who you are and why you do it, and then let's create some gravity around you." Uh, so, and then I would just sell brand alignment. Mm. At least that was the concept. Now, I, we do it all the time very successfully. Do you think um, social media, <clears throat> as the platforms got a little more robust and, and everyone became their own mini media companies, yeah. and we, were, we weren't relying on you know, the traditional media like TV, radio, and print to actually generate you know, ad revenue, yeah. when social media became a thing, became a platform, you could build an audience, yeah. did things start to change in the storytelling world for you? Okay, well, two answers. No. <clears throat> um, early fragmentation was very difficult. <clears throat> early adoption, especially for people who, who religiously watched the Olympics, which are about 20 years older than the people competing in them, um, mm. did not actually connect people personally to audiences and consumers who were actually buying things. Early, um, early social media all, also did not do the work of dimensionalizing athletes. It just showed people who you are and what you did. Mm. 
So it wasn't it wasn't really built on the idea of story. Yeah. You know, narrative pillars, I think, for athletes, I, I would call it narrative inventory early. I think most social media agencies now call it narrative pillars. This is, again, 20 years ago, so I'd, yeah. I didn't make up the term narrative pillars. I called it narrative inventory. I did this athlete discovery with people, and I said, okay, here are the things that really sing for me. Okay, you, you have this beautiful concept that you need to explore called, um, that we called shame as a shadow. This is before Brene Brown. Uh, shame is a shadow. You have another one called um, uh, beer league yoga, right? And you have another one called, does anyone here like beer? I think you can probably guess that's John Montgomery. <laughs> and, and you have these big ideas that engage and ask people to join you in a conversation because when you, when you float a big idea, and ideas have their own gravity, really great ideas have their own gravity. People want to be a part of them. That stuff was missing early that continuity, it was mm -hmm. just about you and who you were. It also, the, the no, on the no part, fragmentation was the big one. On the no part, um, convincing CBC to really, really properly resource and go in deep was not quite as hard as convincing brands, but pretty damn close. Mm -hmm. um, there, was, there was a real interest in internationalizing uh, the event because Canada wanted to see who was winning the events they loved. And there wasn't necessarily a team where winning happened all the time. Although in Torino 2006, we won 24 medals in Vancouver 24, we won, or Vancouver 2010, we won 26. There wasn't, there hasn't actually been much of a change uh, since Torino 2006. But look at all this gold that was like right here in Canada. Mm -hmm. All these kids that were just incredible. And world changers and um, the, the brightest talents in, in the world. And we were, we were missing the point, which was athletes and their stories are the currency of the games. So we did a project um, called Athletes Voice with, uh, with CBC and the Canadian Olympic Committee. And I think for the first time, we really broke through on two things, that the Canadian Olympic Committee was going to come over the top with its partners to encourage storytelling uh, as a way of, of brand integration. Uh, with the weight of the CBC, of the COC, mm. uh, that became commonplace. And I mean, I think I envision Chris sitting across, uh, Overholt sitting across, this, just like you and I are sitting, and mm -hmm. saying to CEOs of companies, get athletes and their stories involved. You're not going to win. If we learned anything from Vancouver 2010, you can't have talking cars in your ads. Yeah. The only things that connect to consumers, and he was there that day, he spoke right after me. Crosby's goal, Joanne Rochette's mom, Charles Hamlin's double gold, Sid, you know, I mean, Billado's, yep. Mile Ricker's home, home gold. I mean, these were the things that resonated, and brands were missing the direct link to consumers. Mm. Athletes and their stories are the currency of the games. So that little nugget, I think, helped change a lot of how business is done today. And it mm -hmm. also laid the foundation for what is now a very successful company in Manifesto. Amazing. Yeah. When did it switch to Manifesto? Uh, um, uh, Manifesto is 11 years old. Okay. Yeah. So just around the time that uh, Chris Overholt and I really became uh, very close friends, just before... Uh, London 2012, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we we had some we had some fun. Mm. 
Dude, I'm just like, I'm floored right now. I'm just like, holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> like it's, I mean, it's a long way from uh, a Mennonite town in southern Manitoba. But, mm-hmm. but uh, it's been a, it's been a fun, fun journey. Could you have seen it? You know, could you have seen, you know, the people, the athletes you're working with now, the, yeah. the impact you're having on Canadian sport? Like, could you have ever dreamt it or? Um, no. I don't think so. I don't, again, I have literally no fixation with, um, like with a, outcomes. A, I've never actually even made a goal. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine. They were, they were like, so what, what are your goals, man? Like she, you know, she was trying to get, go in deep with, uh, you know, and I'm Such like. Such a shitty conversation. I've never actually even contemplated a goal, let alone formed one. So how I, do you, I'm going to cut you off. How, no, do you, how, do you, um, how do you maneuver then? Do you just see opportunities? Are you just yeah. uh, you listening and seeing and just kind of like thinking and then making moves? Yeah, equal parts action. Mm. You know, um, I have no shortage of ideas. Uh, but again, you can't dwell inside of an idea and turn it into a procrastination crush. You have to decide, am I breaking up with this idea? Or are we in it for the long term? Mm. Or does this look more like an idea that, that's a one night stand? Should I give it a try? And should I walk away from it if it doesn't work? And if you think of ideas as relationships, you can kind of get there. And when you know it's a winner, like when you know you found the right one, it's not hard mm-hmm. to be committed. And that's, again, how I gamed my, uh, my challenges with ADHD. You, yeah, you, you, test, you try it out, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? You, mm-hmm. you go into the dating pool, uh, and some ideas come out with you. Mm. And, uh, and then those ideas, I mean, again, they don't become your goals. Mm. I guess you would say I have a goal with my wife to have a committed, um, fun-loving marriage. I call myself a soft, a soft six that makes her laugh. Um, that's my goal in our marriage. Uh, that's about it. I know that the rest will take care of itself if I'm a soft six that makes her laugh. Mm. So again, it'd be a verb, yep. be a verb. So again, I, I don't, I think opportunistically all the time, but I don't allow it, it to ideation to become procrastination. Mm-hmm. And that's another way, way that I've hacked my, my own brain. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, dude, this has been ridiculous. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot, man. It's a lot. But I know. Re- really cool though. Like yeah. just to hear for the, obviously for the first time and not having any context for where this is going to go. It's just like, whoa, my head. Like, yeah, yeah. We could talk for a long time, but. Okay. There's time. Um, I end the show with one question. Hit me. When I say Calgary, where's your head go? Okay. Here's where, here's where my my I want to give you the, I want to give it to you in three ways. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to give you head. I don't want to give you. I want to give you the head <laughs> answer. I want to give you heart, and then I want to give you um, uh, brain. Okay. Uh, so my head says. I asked the big question, can our future keep pace with our past? And I mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that when I was in Calgary 2026 uh, and working on that project for like three and a half years as a senior advisor, it was a culmination of so many things that I worked toward in my life. And I think that when Calgary said no, they lost a little bit of of their soul. Uh, They definitely lost bravado and some of the you know, um, uh, the lesser, uh, I think, lesser valued characteristics. Um, we were in a very 
bad place as a city and as a province. Um, and, um, and I know that uh, for certain because I was one of the people who had to go out and uh, present the business and, and community case for, for the games. And I got beat up. And uh, almost every, every time I went out, 10 times, get beat up. Uh, with the exception of Six Sicka Nation, which was uh, one of the best nights of my life, those kids were absolutely on fire for this uh, mm -hmm. for this project. Um, so, where does my head go? Uh, my head goes to a place where I don't actually um, I don't actually believe Calgary knows what it's going to become, and not in a good way. Um, I think I think a lot of people probably say, ah. Beautiful River City, Riverside City, you know, uh, cost of living. I don't know what they, how they answer that question. I answer the question with a question. Um, and I'd like to find out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to live here. I hope I can contribute as a community builder to uh, creating something better. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know uh, except for an open-ended question. Hmm. Uh, the heart one, uh, I would say, is um, I very much... I very much love this city. I mean, I think it uh, it doesn't it doesn't grow on you; it grows into you. you. You when you say you're a Calgarian, it actually it actually means something. I want to be a contributor that helps uh, define it and uh, be a city builder. I mean, this is why I worked for over two years on the X Games bid that was ultimately um, a casualty of COVID. Um, but I, I I really believe at a heart level that that there is something more here and it's inside of us. I learned some, some, you know, some beautiful words from my good friend, Jim Button, um, you know, before, uh, before he passed away and, you know, he never set out to be a community builder, right? He just gave, that's it. And then that, that giving became contagious, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, he didn't set out to create a bunch of community building disciples Great ideas have their own gravity. He just cared a lot about what the city was, was going to become. And he wanted to put it into a trajectory um, that would prepare it for a, a, a really beautiful future. Um, and from a heart perspective, uh, that's the stuff I really hold on to. Well, my head has um, some internal dialogue, uh, some irrationality, and then maybe a, an answer in between the two is the truth mm -hmm. for me. And then entrepreneurially, I I have a real I have a real concern with this with the city and where where it's going. I think there are some you know really beautiful people that are making hedges, but having gone through a lot of the process of of the Olympics and seeing Calgary lose a little bit of its soul and its identity, not because they said no. Um, all of the 13 or 15 reasons that people decided to say no to a project. And uh, the, there was only one reason to say yes. And people took it out on, on a project that could have been revitalizing and incredible for our city because they were mad at 13 different things. Mm -hmm. All of that undercurrent still exists. That's not entrepreneurial or constructive energy. That is very destructive energy. And where you see where things have gone, especially and acutely in Alberta, um, entrepreneurially, I wonder if we still have the swag. Mm. So that's my brain heart guitar answer for you. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I got much more. And it's not intended to be super um, downside, 
But uh, I think we got to be real with ourselves as a city uh, if we think we're going to get better and become something more uh, than what we currently are. And I hope for the best. That's an answer. Yeah. Um, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for your time. Um, thanks for enlightening me. Enlightening <laughs> me. I, I hope that's what it was. I no. Yeah, it's like I, I yeah. I knew this was going to be a fascinating chat, and uh, it yeah. did not disappoint. Okay, well, I hope I got there for you. I don't know. We didn't talk about sport very much, so I feel like I uh, uh, I left a gap in this uh, mm-hmm. in this uh, otherwise awesome no, interview. I, I think I think the interesting thing is I got a buddy of mine that listens to the show often. His name's uh, Trent. Lives in Texas. Okay, hey Trent. And he's always he always says to me. He calls me and he does this like a, like a debrief with me, and he's like. Dude, I don't even know what this person did, <laughs> and so that's the that's the twist on this. You yeah. know, it's it's an interesting, you know, again to the before we got on on camera and, and yeah. you get interviewed and there's like, tell me like, what you've been doing the last and all these wars and all these things. Yeah, but this is an interesting environment because it's like this jur- yeah. journey story. Yeah, and just because of what you're heavily involved in on the sports side, it's just it's just a piece of your life. And I think, well, and I've never, honestly, I've never been able to share. I mean, I share these stories, I think, anecdotally with people mm-hmm. uh, when they ask or, you know, when I get these um, uh, random story triggers in my in my brain. Mm-hmm. But I don't, um, and I haven't had a conversation uh, this deeply. Uh, that was more of a monologue, so, <laughs> so well, that, I'm sorry if I was, it was so one-sided, but I, uh, I, I love thanks it. very much. No, no, this was the... Great questions. Yeah, it was really, yeah. And here's another funny story that you'll laugh at. Right before you came here, I told you I talked to Devin. He's like, "Yeah, don't fuck this up, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't. Congrats. So, uh, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you too. <laughs>